Um, I'll get into the into the sermon. Several years ago, I actually um, I got a free two week uh, trial for Ancestry.com, and so I tried to maximize my time with Ancestry.com by staying up late and going through as many lines of the family tree as I could go through. And there were several interesting things that I discovered. Uh, for example, in one of the lines, if I did it correctly, it, I saw that I had some family that came to North America about 15 years after the Mayflower. And I could tell that they were all Puritans because you just know Puritan names, right? And a lot of children, right? That was fascinating to me. But then I also remember in, in, in this other line, how my great-great-grandmother uh, was married to, a man chose to marry her in the 1890s when she was a single mom in the 1890s. I would also come across pictures of different family members in the past, and you could just tell that those pictures were, were telling some broader story that I just didn't know. Now, it's actually intriguing to me why I would be interested in ancestry and why many people would be interested in ancestry. How many of you have ever looked at your ancestry before? And, and I just wonder, like, why do we care about people who have died and aren't in our lives today? And, and I, think, I think at least one basic answer is that at a minimum, we know that we have a connection to these ancestors and, and in certain ways, their story is our story. And what has affected them has affected us. I mean, our existence is here today because people existed before us. And so I think about one example when I mentioned my great-great-grandmother, who a man chose to marry her in the 1890s when she had a little boy. And that little boy, obviously, was my great-great-grandfather. And my great-great-grandfather actually, or no, I'm sorry, my great-grandfather, he, he did not tell his family that he was adopted until he, he was in his 80s, about. Because, because to be born to a woman outside of marriage was immense shame in the 1890s. And so he didn't tell, the family didn't even know that his dad adopted him into his own family. Now, my great-grandfather, when he was an adult, he actually was introduced to Jesus Christ, came to faith in Christ, and his wife came to faith in Christ as well, and they loved Jesus. And clearly, even to his 80s, God was still working in his life, and he opened up more about um, about his life and, and where he came from. And God was still working in him. And, and my great-grandfather's faith affected my grandfather and his faith. And my grandfather and his pursuit of Jesus affected my mom. And my mom's faith and how she followed after Jesus has affected me to this day. Our ancestors affect us. Not just physically, though. Our spiritual ancestors affect us, too. And I want to qualify that. What do you mean by spiritual ancestors? I'm not talking about ghosts. Spiritually, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have ancestry 
spiritually. The New Testament teaches us that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are sons of Abraham or sons and daughters of Abraham. Abraham is a part of your family lineage. Did you know that? And Romans says you've been grafted in to this family. You've been adopted into the family, as Galatian talks about. This is your family. Now, now I'm saying this because we're in the book of Genesis, and some people might say, why in the world are you studying some book that's written thousands of years ago about people who are dead, and they don't really have influence on you today? Oh, yes, they do. Yes, they do, because they're my spiritual ancestors. They do have effect on me today. And while we can also say that physically we're related to Adam and Eve and physically we're related to Noah, clearly, there is a spiritual ancestry that we have because just as God is their father, so God is our father. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, for whatever was written in former days, including Genesis, (laughs) was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have Hope, the stories, the narrative of pre-Jewish people even, matters because we're related to them in Christ. So we come to a text today and the ancestry continues. And this is actually a physical ancestry continues. We're going to discover how people expanded on the earth and even how people groups came to be. But in all of this, my prayer is that we would see God's glory on display as he moves through our family line and our spiritual heritage. So I want to give you the main idea, which is God's glory is on display through his mercy and judgment over sin. It's a very general statement here, and we're going to get specific. And you know, you're going to hear from me many times in my preaching, mercy through judgment because that's a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. And as we enter into this post-flood world, we need to see God's glory on display. And we quickly discover that God did not change pre-flood and post-flood. He has stayed the same. You know, God never changes. Do you know that? I mean, we know that, but sometimes we're tempted to believe he does change. God does not change. He is merciful and gracious, and he's also the judge. The flood hasn't changed God. And we see that clearly in this short text. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead to Genesis 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. We're going to read the entire text together. Genesis 9, 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, 
and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall, be, shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now that the floodwaters have receded, we have a brief introduction of what happens next. Noah and his sons, and obviously their wives, left the ark, and we read that all people groups come from these sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we also get this special emphasis in this text about Ham, and actually this kind of name change, it seems, or or this emphasis on Ham's son, Canaan. We actually need to keep this in our mind because Canaan shows up five times in this text. It's very intriguing. Moses is seeking to show us to pay attention to Canaan. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but just keep that in your mind. The repetition matters. So now we're going to just simply jump in and we're going to see this point come out. God's glory is on display through his mercy and judgment over sin. Now, I want to emphasize here, not necessarily God's glory in this first point, but I want to emphasize what sin is taking place here over sin. God is over all of this, and I want to emphasize the sins that we see in the text. Okay, so let's look at verses 20 through 23 again. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backwards, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Moses tells us here that Noah, Noah is the first person to create grape vineyards. So what's intriguing here is actually in this text is that the word for soil is the same Hebrew word that's used in regards to Adam coming out of the ground, soil and ground. And what Moses is doing again is he's bringing a connection between Adam and creation and Noah and this new creation. Noah is kind of a second Adam. What is Noah going to do in this new creation? Is he going to follow in Adam's footsteps or is he the serpent crusher? And what we see is he's not the serpent crusher. Noah's sin. We're told Noah drank wine and then comes the sins. He becomes drunk and he lays naked in his tent. Noah follows in Adam and Eve's footsteps. Adam and Eve use food from the ground for their own selfish pleasures. And Noah does the same. Or we could say they use food, he uses drink from the ground for his own selfish pleasure. So we have both food and drink in early Genesis being used to reveal rebellious hearts. Now you might say, why is this sinful? Even in the text, it doesn't explicitly say that Noah sinned here. Some people will even say, because we don't have an explicit declaration that Noah sinned here, that that Noah wasn't really drunk. Maybe he was just like slightly buzzed. Something like that. Okay, But you know what? In the scriptures, first usages of something are always very important. 
the first mentioning of some type of thing is very valuable. If from this text after this, we saw passages of scripture that said being drunk is totally fine, then we would say, oh, okay, then that's true. But what we find actually in the scriptures are passages like this. As, as, by the way, don't, wait, look at me. Don't look at there. What we find uh, in this passage is an example of God declaring judgment. And he's using imagery to declare what that judgment is and how bad the judgment is. Okay? So, um, to you, I'm going to start after us. But to you also the cup shall pass, you shall become drunk, and strip yourself bare. That's... That is a sign of God's wrath, okay? Or we go to Habakkuk. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Drunkenness and nakedness are going together. God speaks of this as a shame. In essence, what God is saying to these nations is that they're going to act just like Noah did. Drunkenness is a sin against the Lord. And I just want to say this as a, maybe a side note, but if you're an individual who, who might battle drunkenness or alcoholism, or if you're a person who says, no, I'm not an alcoholic, but you do get drunk, would you just be open with other people even outside of your family within this church context, people who can come alongside and point you to Jesus Christ, who can actually care for you and help you in, in gaining victory over this for God's glory. Because drunkenness is a shame, a sinful shame. And you might say, I would never do that. I would never do that. Why? Because you feel the shame and you think you're going to be crushed if you come out into the light. But actually, I want you to notice something here in this text. Uh, praise God for his common grace covenant that we talked about last week. What's God's response to Noah? Or maybe I should say, what isn't God's response to Noah? Think about all that God has done for Noah. God, God is sending a flood to judge the world, and God tells Noah, build the ark, go in the ark. I'm going to protect you and your children and all of these animals. I'm going to rescue you and save you from the just punishment that humanity deserves. And Noah is rescued in this ark. And then, then, Noah, the first act that we have recorded when he, when he responds to God's mercy and grace in rescuing him is to sacrifice to the Lord and to worship him. And then he turns to the created things for satisfaction instead of the Lord and rebels. Now, I'm just telling you that if I were God, I would say, you're done. I'm, I'm taking your life. How can you reject me like this? Do you understand? Like, and yet God is patient with Noah in the face of, of sin, God's mercy shines. Do you know that? God is merciful to Noah. But the emphasis here in this text is even more so on Ham and his sin. 
verses 22 through 23, and Ham, the father of Canaan, Okay, you'll have to look in your text. Uh, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, what in the world is going on here? There's actually a lot of... A lot of teaching and speculation on what's actually taking place here. Um, Some people will say that the phrase saw the nakedness means that Ham actually did something sexual with either his father Noah or with his mother. Because later on in the Old Testament, there's a very close phrase of seeing the nakedness that is more euphemistic to to speak to doing something sexual with someone. And so that's a very good argument, except um, I I don't hold that because the Hebrew phrase is actually slightly different. In addition, if we just look at the text right here, you, you see the emphasis on Shem and Japheth literally not looking at their father's nakedness, right? Their backs are turned, heads are turned. No way are we gonna look at our dad's nakedness. So I think this, it's just literally Ham saw his father's nakedness. Now some of you might be like, what's, what's the problem with that? And, and in some ways, I wonder if that response from us could reveal that in our culture, our senses have been so dulled by nudity or too much skin that we don't feel the shame of seeing somebody else's nakedness. But the the first mentioning of nakedness in Genesis was before sin entered, and they were naked and what? Unashamed. But then we see, as Moses goes on, they sin, and then they move from naked and unashamed to naked and shamed. Nakedness and shame go together. And what I think we see from Ham here is that he doesn't care about the shame that goes along with nakedness. And what he's going to do is he's actually going to take that shame, use it for himself, and, and, and actually shame his father more. Because what does he do after he sees his father's nakedness? He goes out and tells his brothers. That is super nice. It's a really great thing to do, right? In addition, it says here that Japheth and Shem, they took, they took a garment. The ESV says a garment. One commentator I read says that actually from the original language, it should say the garment. How does a garment versus the garment change our understanding? A, the. The garment indicates that that would be a specific garment. It seems to suggest that when Ham went out to tell Shem and Japheth in order to maybe prove that their dad's naked in there, he took his dad's clothes and he's like, look, dad's naked in there. Now, I want to ask you something. Have you ever felt embarrassed by something that you have done? Just raise of hands. Ever? 
Are there things or something in your life that you can think of that's one of those like deep, dark secrets that you may have only told one or two other people? Anybody? Raise your hands. Now, what if you told that this other person and then that person told somebody else and you found out about that? How would you respond to that? How would you feel about that? See, Ham did not respect his father. Before Noah could even get a chance to repent, Ham literally told the world. And that's, and Ham takes the shame and uses it for his own selfish benefits. He doesn't care. By the way, I think there is a very practical example or illustration for us here, even in our day. As I mentioned earlier, maybe we're too used to being in this highly sensualized, non-clothing type of culture, pornographic culture that we live in. But listen, even, even if somebody else is willing to expose themselves to other people, that doesn't mean it's okay to, to consume them. And that, that's what it is. It's consumption of another person. You're, they, they are embracing shame, and you're affirming it and using it for your own selfish purposes. You're dehumanizing somebody else. God does have intended purposes within nakedness, within marriage, and helping the weak. Outside of that, there's no room. Naked and shamed. And we don't use that shame for our selfish purposes. I've actually had, I think, at least a couple of occasions where I've said something like this to individuals where, where they might talk about their temptations towards uh, sexual sin. And, and they may have fallen in, in some type of way, and they'll say, well, you know, uh, the person was dressed like this, or there was, it was just really, really difficult because, and they'll explain certain types of things and, and I understand that there can be explanations for why our temptations are heightened. We all get that, right? But I also want to respond to this individual. They had a choice. As a, as a believer in Christ especially, you're free to not sin. And I've said, I think at least to a couple of people before, that if, if, if you somehow, for whatever reason, were in a context where a woman is drunk naked on a floor... Is that all the reason you need in order to take advantage of her now? No! Right? Please say, right. What should a follower of God, a follower of Jesus do in that moment? Cover her and take her somewhere safe. That's what you should do. So, so whether it's whether it's a father, whether it's a mother, whether it's a sibling, whether it's a friend, we remember nakedness and shame go together. And like Shem and Japheth, we seek to cover that because God loves his creation. He cares about people and their bodies and he seeks their good. And so that might be a little bit of a side note, but I think that that's an implication that we can get even practically for us. 
But what we see here already is the sin. Noah's sin, we see Ham's sin. And so now I want us to move to see God's judgment over the sin. God's judgment first towards Noah. Now, some people say Noah didn't get any punishment. And I'd say, really? He didn't? I, I, first off, verses 28 and 29. What does it say about Noah in verses 28 and 29? After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he, what? Died. Wait, this is a new creation. Are we going to live forever in this new creation? Nope. He dies. Like Adam and Eve die. He dies. In addition to this, I believe that the punishment that Ham is receiving is a pain that Noah probably felt. I do not believe that we should look at the statement of Noah, cursed be Canaan, as, as Noah just flying off of the handle and he hates Ham. You know, Noah doesn't produce magic with his words. He's being prophetic with his words, speaking the words of God and what's going to happen. Many of you know Many of you know what I mean when I say that a parent's heart breaks when their child is sinning and experiencing the consequence of sin. If you are godly at all, you care about your children. I don't think Noah is just flippantly, cursed be you, out from my presence. Got that one taken care of. I can't know this for sure, but I know this would be me in saying, I was the one who got drunk. I was the one who was naked, took my clothes off in my tent. What if I wouldn't have? But see, sin always affects others. Always. And Noah's sin affects Ham. And so we see God's judgment specifically towards Ham and Canaan. So we read about these in verses 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now again, Noah doesn't have magical powers. Even in the ancient pagan world, they would have recognized that if there was a statement like that, the only way that that statement had power was if there was a power behind that person. Okay? And so, I, so the same thing would be with the Hebrew world when they read this, and we would understand this too. Noah's not the power. God is the one speaking through Noah. These statements only matter because God is the one speaking. So Noah is speaking the Lord's prophecy. Canaan will be a servant of servants and will be cursed. And it's interesting that Noah says Canaan. This is very interesting uh, because it is future-looking. And I want you to think about the people who are reading this for the first time. It's the wandering Israelites reading the book of Genesis. And they are called by God to enter into the land of Canaan. The Canaanites are there. And God is saying they need to be removed from the promised land. This is your land, not theirs. 
And it's interesting that when God gives Israel laws, many of the laws that God gives are laws that are saying, don't be like Canaan. So like, I would encourage you at some point in time today, this week, to pick up Leviticus 18. And in Leviticus 18, a lot of those laws are contradicting Canaan's behavior. And do you know what a lot of Canaan's behavior is? Sexual. They don't care about the shame of anybody else. They will use that shame in order to overpower other individuals. And so here we see there's the beginning. There's the beginning stages with with Ham. There's no shame with nakedness. So the wandering Israelites, they read about the beginning of Canaan. And once again, in the book of Genesis, we have a picture of the seed of the serpent. From Noah comes a type of the seed of the serpent. But, but, just like the serpent is cursed... What's the word here? Cursed. Be Canaan. Canaan's cursed as well. Now, just to make sure you understand, the Canaanites, who who are a part of the Canaanites? Egyptians? Babylonians? uh, Assyrians? Many of the great nations of the ancient world were from Canaan. And you might be tempted to think, well, it sure doesn't look like they're the cursed ones. I mean, we still study Egypt because it's so fascinating, right? And the the length of reign went so long. There was so much wealth, so much amazing things. And, And large portions of history that we still don't know from Egypt. But you know, the reality is, is that the Canaanites were done away with over time. Did you know that, actually? That the final colony of Canaanites lasted until the second century and Rome took them out in Carthage. That's when Canaanites ended. And yet, Shem and Japheth remained. What a lesson for us to learn, for us to learn today. When God makes a promise, does he always follow through? Yes. It may not be in our timetable. Actually, many times it's not in our timetable. But God is always faithful to his promises. And he's giving a picture here of the crushing of the serpent. He actually did crush Canaan. It's done. Now the question for the original audience reading this is, are they going to trust God's promises to bring Canaan under their rule? Or are they going to trust themselves? And we know what the Israelites did. Sometimes, sometimes they trusted God. Many times they didn't. And they were scared of the Canaanites. But but what they should get from this is God made promises. And he's worthy of our trust. And what we should see when we read this and look back on history is that we should say God is worthy of our trust. Right? And yet we often can say, well, I mean, I know he's worthy of my trust, but I just got to make sure that these things are in order here because God might not follow through a little bit. Any of you ever done something like that before? And if you say no, you're lying. We all do that. But God is worthy of our trust. His declaration of judgment reveals his glory and provides comfort to those who will turn to him. We know it provides comfort because God's glory will be on display through his mercy over sin. Verses 26 through 27. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So just as Noah's prophecy about Ham is speaking of a future people of Canaan, so Noah's statements here are talking about people groups. Shem, Shem is from whom the Israelites came. Abraham's going to be showing up soon, and he comes from the line of Shem. Japheth, from Japheth we get the Greek world. Okay? All making sense? Okay? So we have Jews and Greeks coming from Shem and Japheth. Notice, notice Noah's statement as he starts this, as he says, blessed be the Lord. Now that's a statement of praise. And why praise God in the midst of punishment and sin? It's because God is going to crush sin. He has not forgotten his original promise that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent. And so what we have here with Noah is a type of seed of the serpent that's going to be crushed. And we also see from Noah the seed of the woman is continuing. The seed of the woman is going to come through specifically Shem. And Japheth is going to be blessed under Shem. Now this, again, is precisely what we see as history continues. Abraham is promised that through him all the nations are going to be blessed. The nation of Israel develops. Even certain Canaanites are blessed in aligning with the God of Israel. As you read about Ruth and Rahab, that they are blessed because of faith and trust in the Lord. Now over time, the Canaanites as a people are gone by the power of Japheth, which is the prophecy, right, um, that we read about. But... It's just a type here of the serpent being crushed. Because Ham, Ham is not the serpent. We know who the serpent is. Revelation says it's Satan. And Satan and the demons need to be destroyed. Sin in our own lives and our own hearts needs to be destroyed. And Shem and Japheth, if they don't turn to the Lord and trust in him, they're not, they're not going to experience serpent crushing and they're not going to experience eternal life. So even though Canaan's destroyed second century by the Rome, uh, Roman government, that's a type of a future serpent crusher. And that future serpent crusher we know is Jesus. Because when Jesus comes to the earth, he speaks to Shem, to the Israelites. And he says, don't take pride that Abraham is in your physical lineage. And Jesus says, I can make sons of Abraham from rocks. That's a pretty powerful statement. How can he do that? It's through trusting him and, and turning to him. It's his grace in adopting people into his family. And so Jesus came, and, and we know Jesus comes into this world, and he lives unlike Adam. He lives unlike Noah in that, while he is human, he lives in perfection, glorifying God. And then Jesus 
calling people to trust him is revealing. He is the serpent crusher. He is, he is the seed of the woman being virgin born. He is God in the flesh. And yet, even Shem and Japheth, Jews and Gentiles, they hated Jesus and they put him on the cross. Before Jesus went to the cross, what does he say in his prayer to the Father the night before? If it is possible, let this, what, cup pass from me. And he has a meal, food and drink, with his, with his disciples. In the Old Testament, cup, wrath. Noah is this one of a first symbol of cup being wrath. And Jesus on the cross was shamed because on the cross he was naked. And the writer of Hebrews says that on the cross Jesus despised the shame and endured the cross. Jesus drank the cup. Jesus took the shame that our sins deserved. He took the wrath, the judgment that our sins deserved. And Jesus died. And in that death, you could say, oh, no, he's just like Noah. He's just like Adam. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Amen? Jesus rose from the dead to conquer both sin and death and to bring what we talked about last week, a truly new creation where there is no sin, where there will be no shame, where there will be only welcoming into the Father's presence and everyone who trusts in Jesus and turns from their sins is a part of the family of God. Now that's amazing grace, amen? Now, how then ought we to live? How then ought we to live? It's interesting, because when you go further into the New Testament, how often the Apostle Paul talks about to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentiles. That's Shem and Japheth. To the Jew first, also to the Gentile. Jesus has come to bring them together. To experience the blessing together in God's family. And so, I think it's intriguing, like for example, in looking at Ephesians, I, I do wonder if Paul was thinking about Noah when he said this, because it kind of actually, when you read this portion of Ephesians, you kind of wonder, like, why is that line in here? And you're familiar with it. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Like, you could almost do without that first part of the sentence, actually, in the context of the reading. Why is he putting that in there? I, I can't know for sure, but I kind of wonder if it's, you know, Noah in, the new, in his new creation, he got drunk. And that's debauchery. And what does debauchery mean? Debauchery is, is excessive license, and many times it's associated with sexual sin. Okay? And so he's like, don't be like Noah. We've been given the new creation, not just a new creation. So what do we do with that? Be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in you. And then Paul says there's three things that we do from that. Being empowered by the Holy Spirit, 
We are to sing to one another. We are to give thanks to God the Father together. We are to submit to one another. And I want to focus on that one another here in this text. Because why do you think, by the way, why do you think Aaron read from Ephesians earlier in the service? Mm, Think about it, think about it. And you might even say, what was it even about? Okay, I'm going to... Jesus came to bring together Jews and Gentiles. In the Ephesian church, there's Jews and Gentiles. The ethnic differences that existed there. And Jesus came to bring them together and to make them one. And now when Paul says later, one another, these are the another's with whom you're one. You are one with these people. Jesus is the superior Shemite. Jesus is that, and he fulfills this in bringing all together. And so what's the implication for us? Love one another. Encourage one another in the faith. Sing to one another. That'd be weird. No, we just did in this service. Encourage one another and submit to one another. Care for one another. Why? Because Jesus died for this. He has set us free. Jesus has broken down the walls between the nations and the ethnicities, brought them together, and because we're a part of the new creation, we are to join together in unity in Christ. Not being divisive, not getting drunk and uncaring towards one another or shaming each other. Not abusing God's gift from the ground for selfish pleasure. Instead, we are to care for one another and by the Lord's grace exhibit the superior Sethite's character of love and care towards each other. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.